0: Good morning, those of you I don't know, my name is Preston Sharp, it's so uh, good to be with you all today. Uh, I am the pastor of Sacrament Church in Nashville, Tennessee, was sent out by this church a few years ago, and have the opportunity to come back every once in a while, and it's such a privilege, this is coming home for me in more ways than one, I also happen to be related to Brent and Jana Sharp. I am their son. And so uh, it's great to be here today. Uh, it's also awesome to be here at the first week of Advent. Advent is this season of anticipation, of expectation. It's actually the, the beginning of the church new year. So today to the church, we say happy, no, not happy birthday, uh, new, ha- happy new year. That's what it is. Happy new year. It's the beginning of the church year. We start the church calendar off with Advent. And so so glad to be here today. Um, Advent is also this season. Uh, Like I said, of anticipation. It is anticipation and it's pointing back to the incarnation of Jesus, his first coming, God in our world, Emmanuel, stepping into our existence. It is also anticipation of a future world made right. So we anticipate his second coming, that he's coming again, and we live our lives in such a way that we point to that reality. And then it is also an anticipation of God, of the Lord of all revealed in our everyday life, that we can live in anticipation of God revealed, that this new hope in this future world springing up in our everyday existence. I want to invite you once again to stand with me for the reading of our gospel from Matthew chapter 24 today. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I wonder for some of us if this passage brings up a bunch of different memories. There's some of us that grew up in certain traditions where this passage was really, really important, and maybe you bring a lot of baggage to this passage today. Some of you might be here, and maybe you came to faith during the Jesus movement, the 1970s. You might have a song in your head. I wish we'd all been ready. Okay, there's more in this service than the previous. I was all out by myself last service. You have that Larry Norman song kind of playing in your head. Maybe you remember some movies about that time, A Thief in the Night, movies about people who were uh, driving cars, and all of a sudden, they disappeared, and the cars would run off the side of the road, people who were shaving in in the mirror, and then their electric razor would be rolling around in the sink, and their clothes were on the floor. I don't know why you have to be naked to be raptured. (laughs) Seems like all the clothes are, are always left on the floor. So, but, but the idea of that song, there's no time to change your mind, the sun has come and you've been left behind. This song is present in this passage, right? Now some of you, um, maybe you're children of the Jesus movement, folks. So you go, I know that song, but I thought it was a DC Talk song, right? They redid that. Or maybe you remember the Left Behind books or the Left Behind movies with Kirk Cameron or apparently later Nicolas Cage. I don't, I don't know about that. But, um, but there's, in those movies and books, there's global turmoil. There's an Antichrist figure, and um, there's kind of the world collapsing. Some of you are here, and you're younger than I am, quite a bit younger than I am, and you've not heard of any of this stuff, and it's kind of freaking you out right now, okay? I'm going to talk about that today. But we've had this idea in our culture, especially in evangelical strains of Christianity, that That things in the world will get really, really, really bad, and then some people are going to go away. Some people will escape, okay? Things will get really, really, really bad, and then some people will evacuate. And so in some traditions, there's been this idea that that is central to the Christian faith. Don't be left behind. It's the main commandment. Don't be left behind. Get right so that you're not left behind, because the world is filled with guns and war. Right? It's going to get worse and worse and worse, and you need an evacuation plan. You need to get away. But what if that's not the Christian story at all? What if the Christian story is not about things getting really, really, really bad and some people escaping, but rather it's about a God who desires to heal and restore a broken world? I want to suggest today that the story of Scripture is not a story of escape but a story of healing. And I also want to suggest that this passage is not about escape, that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What if Jesus is not saying, get your heart right so that you can disappear and not be left in the midst of destruction and evil? Look at the context. We want to be true to the context of scripture. We want to know what's around it. What does Jesus compare this event that he's talking about to? He says, we compare it to the days of Noah, So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So in the Noah story, who is taken away? Everyone except Noah and his family. They are spared. Everyone else is swept away. So in the Noah story, being taken away is not a good thing. It's actually kind of the inverse. It means the flood got you, right? The ones who are left behind are the ones who, um, they see how God works things out in the midst of a sinful world, Noah and his family. Noah and his family are saved. They are the ones who are left behind. And Jesus says there will be a day when there'll be two men in a field and one will be swept away and the other one will be left Two women will be grinding at a handmill, One will be taken away and the other is left. And implicit in this passage is the idea, you don't want to be the one who's taken. You don't want to be the one who's snatched away. In fact, the end of the passage says, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into you. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, let me say this. We believe in the second coming of Jesus, that he is returning again, literally returning again to make things right, to restore and heal the world. That is part of our Christian confession. It's what we say. It's part of who we are. It's our blessed hope as the people of God. And this story is a foreshadowing of that story. But we need to remember that the trajectory of the Christian story in Scripture is a a God who heals, who returns to heal and restore, not to initiate an evacuation plan. Okay, They're different. Okay, so that may be hard for us. Some of us have a certain way that we've understood and interpreted that scripture for so long. If Jesus is not talking about kind of a future day when, when people will be snatched away, what is he talking about? Well, recent scholarship has suggested that Jesus is not referring to the end of days or a rapture here, but Jesus is referring to a specific cataclysmic apocalyptic event that would happen within a generation of the disciples. He's prophesying this event that would happen within the next generation. He's speaking of a moment when they would finally see the climax of the Roman Empire and its destruction and its force and all of the tension among the Jewish people and the political groups among the Jewish people saying there will come an event where those things will come to an head all of that turmoil that you're experiencing with the Roman Empire and with all the groups within you that's going to come to a cataclysmic moment and Jesus speaks of this time that would be ahead within the next generation for the disciples and when this happens families will be torn apart communities will be destroyed In fact, the Jewish faith itself would be at a crisis point. That thing would eventually happen. In 70 AD, we see the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. We see that Jerusalem as a city is ransacked by the Roman armies. So we look at this passage and we go, so what? Okay, this is about the destruction of a building? That's what this story is about? How does that have any implications for us at all? What does that possibly mean for us? How is that a big deal? Well, first of all, we have to understand what the temple meant for the Jewish people. It wasn't just a church building, it wasn't a religious artifact. For the Jewish people in the first century and, and for many generations, the temple was the center of their life, their religion, their faith, and their culture. In fact, the reason why it was is it was God's house, it was the place where heaven and earth meet. So there was a belief that the closer that you were to the temple, the closer you were to to God. In fact, what it did is it spoke to a world with pagan gods and it said, our God, Yahweh, he lives with us. He lives with his people. He's not flighty. He doesn't go all over the place. He has a house in our neighborhood. Our God is present. He's with us and they centered their whole life and their whole faith around this temple and that building was destroyed. Everything came tumbling down. This cataclysmic event would send shockwaves throughout Jewish society. It would cause people to doubt God's faithfulness. What do we do now that his house is gone? Now that his presence, his reminder for generations that he's with us is gone, are we even God's people anymore? What does that even mean? We see wars, rumors of wars, famines, families breaking apart, and it would be so disastrous at this time that the only language you could use to describe it was the end of the world. Everything came crashing down. And yet, as devastating as this moment would be, as difficult as it would be, as much as it would be a judgment on the world, it was also seen as a moment when Jesus would be seen for who he really is. Many people rejected Jesus when he... Came into the world. Many of the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus because he didn't fit the temple structures, right? So they couldn't clearly see who he was because so, they, they had held on to the temple structures in such a way that they were clouded and they couldn't see his vision. So Jesus is saying the Son of Man will be vindicated when this happens. People will see who he really is, he'll be revealed in the world. The Son of Man will be shown as triumphant, they'll see that he was right. Jesus tells the disciples, nobody knows when this thing is going to happen. He says it'll happen within a generation, but nobody knows when exactly it's going to happen. But life would go on as normal, even up until the last minute. But when this event happens, it would divide people. Two people in the mill, work colleagues, would be split apart. Families would be split apart. Why? Because when an invading army is coming, the invading forces, when they sweep through a village, they take some to their deaths, and they leave some behind. This would have been an awful, cataclysmic experience. So again, what does that mean for us? It was awful that that happened back then, but what, what does that really mean? Like, like what could, how could that possibly speak to us today? It's a prophecy about a past event, the destruction of the temple. What does that mean? Well, one of the patterns that we see in Scripture As we see that God does something in the life of his people, he speaks something, he acts in some way in the presence of his people, and even though he calls them to something, he speaks to them, he moves amongst them, they still choose counterfeits. They still choose other things to put their hope in or to put their trust in. But eventually, these counterfeits prove to be empty at best, and they prove to be destructive at worst. And so at the end of the day, those things are shown for what they are and God is proven true. Those things are judged and God still redeems his people. He doesn't give up on his people. He still redeems them. The children of Israel trusted in the temple and it was right for them to do so. It was the right thing for them to trust in. The temple was a good thing. It was a sign of God's presence of who he was. And yet when Jesus came as the new temple, the new place where heaven and earth meet, they couldn't see him for who he was. He didn't fit with the temple in the way that they had grasped onto it. So a lot of people dismissed him. We're happy with our structures. We're happy with the way that we have things. We don't need anything new. And yet at the end, at this moment in 70 AD, the temple is seen as limited and as short-lived because it's destroyed. I wonder today, what are the things that we cling on to? These things that prevent us from seeing God's work in the world. There are moments in life, I think this passage tells us, and the pattern of scripture tells us, that these things will be judged. They'll be shown for what they are. They're going to be shown as empty. They're going to be shown as not leading anywhere, in some ways destructive. I don't know what that thing is for you. Maybe for some of us, it's what other people think of us or it's our reputation, that that's what we put everything in. Maybe you've spent years and years and years at your job cultivating your reputation. That you say, hey, if I don't climb the ladder of success, if I don't get this certain level, at least I have my reputation. At least people speak well of me. And then one day you notice you overhear at the water cooler. (laughs) Maybe your coworkers have all changed. Maybe you have new management, whatever it is. People are starting to talk about you and make up rumors about you, that your reputation seems like it's destroyed now. What now? What if that's all that I've held on to? Perhaps you put your your trust in a specific skill that you have acquired. This skill is who you are. You know, if everything else fails, at least I know I'm good at that right? If everything else in my life is, is over, at least I know I can hang on to this, and I'm good at this particular thing. There was a pastor um, named Ed Dobson, and Ed was a pastor of a large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a long time, uh, many, many years. And, uh, and Ed had, was known as a preacher. He was known uh, for his preaching ability, and, and several years ago, um, Ed was diagnosed with ALS, And obviously, as that disease progressed, he became more and more limited in his everyday life, and he was given just a short time to live. He uh, recalled at one point, one of the first things to go after his diagnosis was his voice. He's a preacher, known for his preaching skill. In some ways, he felt like he had his identity in his preaching skill, and he can no longer speak in public. After he retired, he said that it used to be when he was a pastor, his phone would always ring off the hook, would ring and ring. People needed him. They needed him, and he acted like he was frustrated with it, but there was part of him that kind of liked that he was needed. As soon as he retired, he said, my phone stopped ringing. I had to call it to see if it was really working because nobody was calling me. I wasn't needed anymore. Maybe you've built your life on a specific skill or a specific ability and that skill in your life is fading or you find that you're not needed anymore. What do you do then? If that's all that you are, if that's your identity, what do you do? Maybe some of you are empty nester parents and part of that you've found is really fun. You have more time, you have more money to spend, you can try new things but there's an element of it perhaps that is identity redefining for you that you go in some ways you go i'm not needed anymore and then in other ways you go i'm not needed anymore right changes who we are maybe you're a parent of grown kids and you've always prided yourself in being a near perfect parent we did things the right way. We made the right choices. We bought the right books and we shared them with, the, with people and we told them of how great parents we were. But now your, your grown child is making some choices that are freaking you out. Okay. Perhaps it has nothing to do with your parenting at all, but what if your myth of being a perfect parent is, uh, is being dissolved? I'm struggling right now, honestly, to be completely vulnerable with you, about not putting my hope in a sports team. They're doing really well this year, okay? They're, they're, they're doing really well, and I'm kind of starting to think, wow, this is getting better and better, and they, they might make the Super Bowl. I might be a fan of a Super Bowl-winning team. All would be right with the world. My identity would change. Who I am, the world would be made right and be restored, and then I remember, I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, This is not a hope that is sure. This is a hope that is certain to disappoint. Maybe some of you are here today and you just started college. And in high school, everything was great. You had a lot of friends, you made great grades, you performed really high, you were the best in your class at a lot of things. And you're in college and you're a little worried because you're looking around and going, there's a lot of people who are good at things here. And there are some people that are better than me at things, right? Or maybe you graduated college and you're stepping out to find the job of your dreams and everything's always gone well for you and doors have always opened for you and you're meeting incredible resistance right now. And you're finding, maybe I'm not the best in the world at that thing. (laughs) Maybe there's other people out there, right? And you thought, maybe as long as I have that thing, as long as I'm always good at that, everything will be right. But that's changing. What about when you lose someone? Someone who was always, you thought, was always there for you. Maybe they died or they leave. They leave for someone else. You always thought, as long as I have them, as long as I have them, I'm going to be fine. But now what? Now what do we do? Or perhaps you don't lose them, but they've shown themselves to be someone who's not trustworthy. That you can't put all your hope in them. Now, all this sounds like really bad news, I know, (laughs) Um, and it's intentional. I want you to imagine how the temple being destroyed felt for the Jewish people, that everything they had hinged their hopes on, their desires on, their life, their joy, their peace, everything was torn down. Everything they put their hope in, everything is gone. And I wanna suggest that that's actually what sin is. Sin is misplaced trust. It's when we trust in counterfeits, when we define ourselves and we define the world by one thing that is not God, even if that thing is good. All of those things I just mentioned are not bad things, right? Good reputation is a great thing. Friends and family members who you can count on is amazing. Success in business is wonderful. The temple was a really good thing. It was actually the really good thing, but it's how we hold on to these things that matter. Do they define who we are so much that we lose sight of Christ in the midst of them? The beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we find our identity in him, every other thing comes in proper perspective, okay? So I still seek a good reputation. That's still a goal. But I do so because I want my character and my values and my actions to reflect the way of Jesus in the world. Not because it validates me, but because of who he is. I can still seek good relationships and people who I can count on because I want my relationships to be a reflection and an overflow of Christ's love for me, right? My success in business, I recognize, is not because it validates me, but because I want to be a redemptive force for good in the world by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And of course... We choose good things sometimes. We put our hope inappropriately in good things, but sometimes we also choose bad things, things that in and of themselves are inappropriate and destructive. And they come often from longings that are appropriate. They come from a longing for, maybe I have a longing for peace in my life. I need peace. That's a legitimate and good longing. But we actually turn to a substance to find that peace. We see that that leads to destruction. Maybe I have a longing for joy in my life. That's a good longing to have, a longing for joy. But we seek that joy in inappropriate experiences or relationships, right? But when things get tough, when the Roman armies march in, when things in our lives get torn down, we see that when we cling to those things, they actually lead us to empty places, to broken places, not to where we need to be. That's why Romans 13, which is our epistle reading today, says, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. As in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So what's the command to the disciples here? Well, if I were the disciples in this moment and Jesus is talking about this cataclysmic event that's going to happen in the next generation, it would bother me, right? Go, when is this going to happen? Can you give me a few more details about this? But what Jesus tells them, all Jesus tells them is keep awake. Keep out watch. Watch and wait for the Son of Man to be revealed. Well, what does that mean for us today? I want to suggest that keeping watch is an active thing, not a passive thing. It's not just kind of sitting back. God's going to reveal himself at some point to us. It's an active, it's an active vigilance. It's being ready, it's watching out, it's preparing ourselves for him to be revealed, expecting that. Well, how do we do that? Well, one of the ways I think we do that is we lean into his judgment of the things that are counterfeits, those things that we have chosen that are not appropriate. We lean into his judgment. Judgment sometimes seems like a dirty word to us because we equate judgment and punishment. So we think that for something to be judged, it means it's to be punished, But, but judgment is necessary, And it's an appropriate part of God's revealing himself to us. This week, we had to take our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, uh, Lucy, to the doctor because she had pneumonia. And she's better now. But she was really lethargic. She was really sick. And so we took her to the doctor. And and three-year-olds don't quite understand the concept of what happens at the doctor. So she goes to the doctor and and we kind of trying to tell her she has to cooperate with the doctor in order for her to be well in order for them to help her, right? She's not interested in that. She didn't want the doctor to touch her. In fact, she hid from the doctor. I'll show you a picture. So that was her presence when waiting for the doctor. She didn't want anybody to touch her. She wanted to hide, she wanted to go away. But if you go to the doctor, you have to have the doctor look at you and judge what is wrong with you. You have to have a doctor judge you. Only when you do that can you be healed. If you have a broken arm and you go into the doctor for the doctor to set it and you put the arm behind your back and you just casually talk to the doctor and never mention your broken arm, they can't help you with it. You have to reveal, you have to offer up the broken parts of yourself in order to be healed. And I think this is a great metaphor for judgment. The doctor takes a light and looks in dark places. Literally, with an instrument, looks in the dark places, your ears, your nose, your throat. That's a metaphor for judgment. The judgment is this process of bringing something into light so that that thing can be healed. Judgment is not punishment. Judgment is the revelation of our broken or our sickness so that that thing can be dealt with. Now, Judgment should freak us out a little bit. Uh, that's appropriate. When you go to the doctor, there's always a concern that you'll be sicker than you think you are, okay? That there'll be something seriously wrong with you. And that, that concern, that even fear is appropriate, right? It keeps us vigilant. We, we, it keeps us aware. And that's not a fear of the doctor. It's a fear of the state of our own selves, right? That we're sicker than we think we are but there are also other fears that we can experience. We might be afraid that the doctor is not as knowledgeable as they need to be. Um, I don't know about you, I've kind of reached an age now where when I go to like urgent care, most times the doctor is younger than me, which kind of bothers me, right? Kind of freaks me out. There's a, a little bit of a moment that I go, is there somebody older here that can, that can help me with this problem, especially when I'm really sick? Don't worry about that, I've, you know, they're really knowledgeable, they've been to school, all that kind of stuff. But I still, I have that thought, right? So there's this concern, is the doctor, is the one who's dealing with me, the one who's judging me, is that person knowledgeable enough? Do they know everything that's going on? And there's also a fear that that doctor, that that physician, that that person who judges me is not going to care for us in a compassionate way, right? Lucy while she was there, they had to test her for strep throat. And I don't know if you've had that test, but they have to stick something really back in your throat. As adults, we just know we have to get through that because it's a good test. But, uh, but for a three-and-a-half-year-old, I'm telling her, they're doing this to help you feel better. And they're sticking something down her throat. She doesn't understand <laughs> that that's a good thing. Sometimes we don't understand. Um, sometimes things don't make sense for us in the present moment. Part of leaning into God's judgment is reminding ourselves of who our great physician is, of who our doctor is. Not only the one who is completely knowledgeable, who knows us inside and out, but the one who is compassionate with us, who has our best interest in mind, who embraces us. And that's why certain things are so important. Immersing ourselves in Scripture is so important. Spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting are so important. Gathering Sunday after Sunday, coming to the table together, singing songs of redemption and salvation, speaking the creed, our story as the people of God together, hearing a benediction spoken over you. These things form us and they shape us and they remind us of who our great physician is. They remind us of who our God is. Now, that's a daily walk. Learning to trust. It's not a kind of an instant moment. It's a daily walk. It's a process. It's walking things out. It's reminding ourselves because we often choose counterfeits over and over again. And often that process is not fun. It's a narrow road. Dealing with our sicknesses, dealing with the things that are broken in our life, the counterfeits in our life is not fun. It looks like our face looks like that sometimes, right? but it's worth it. It's worth it. So our prayer today is may we be a people who are ready, who keep watch. Not ready to be swept away from the bad stuff in our lives, but ready to lock eyes with Jesus in the face of storms, challenges, invading armies, destruction. May we not be a people who build our houses on sand, on counterfeits, on things that are empty and often destructive, who trust in our own efforts, who trust in others' approval, or trust in anything else. And may we be reminded that we serve a God who created a good world, and that God created us as image bearers, that we're dependent on him, and that he doesn't give up on us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the better way that you've given us that you are true all the way through, that you are right, that you are substantive, that in you is our true hope. Lord, we, we recognize today that we tend to accept counterfeits. We tend to go astray. We put our hope in other things. Even good things become central for us. Help us to lay those things down. Help us to learn trust in you, that you're better, that you're good, you have our best interest in mind thank you for who you are in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen thanks for listening to this message from sanctuary church if you're in the tulsa area we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on sundays at 8 30 a.m 10 a.m or eleven thirty a.m if you would like more information about who we are and what we're about or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.